Hello, and welcome to Final Show Films. I'm John, or Taku, as you might know me on Twitter, the executive producer here, and I just want to thank you for watching. It really means a lot to us that people watch, listen to, and enjoy our shows. If you want to help us keep making these shows as fun and lively as they can be, please join your fellow fans in supporting us at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms, or by subscribing to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash finalshowfilms. It really means a lot to us that the amount of you who do support us continue to do so, especially our $25 plus tier supporters on Patreon. Antitonic, Catwater Flame, Samantha Bates, Maureen Monty, and Gravity Alexander. Every little bit helps, so thank you to all of our patrons and subs. Check us out on Twitter at Final Show Films and on our website at www.finalshowfilms.com for updates, go live notifications, and more. We love interacting with you, so feel free to tweet at us or email us at finalshowfilms at gmail.com. That being said, please relax and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 48, where we're going to be talking about Critical Role, episode 47, The Family Business. I'm John, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and joining me today is Jack. Hey, everybody, it's Jack, at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy, uh, uh, at JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And again, we're talking about The Family Business, episode starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talson Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxeldon, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Real as Scale, and Travis William as Grog, and, as always, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Uh, last time on Critical Role, Gern Blanstein happened to all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Legit. And now we don't ever have to worry about it again. Never again. Uh, after after departing from Gurn, uh, the the uh, the the group sort of reconvenes with the rest of uh, Pyra, the Pyra survivors, and starts discussing what their next steps are. Uh, deciding first and foremost that everyone needs a break because they need to rest and are tired, Scanlan. Uh, offers uh, a, f- a new ability of his own uh, to offer shelter to everyone. After some co- after some coaxing, everyone includes the survivors of Pyra, who promptly ignore his offer because he offers it in a weird way, as Scanlan is wont to do. Um, uh, but it, who are eventually coaxed into it by by Keyleth. and Scanlan uh, casts Maxwell's uh, not Maxwell um, Morton Kanan Morton, Morton Kanan's magnificent mansion. Uh, Morton Kanan's Ma- Magnificent Mansion is a uh, fairly high-level spell that basically summons a <laughs> infinitely complex and infinitely customizable mansion that is accessed via a single solitary magical door that only lets the people that you designate uh, that you designate through it. Uh, so, upon summoning this, there is much guffaw about Scanlan's newfound powers, people asking him if he's been holding out on them, or if or if this is something new that he's acquired, doing the doing the uh, the the various uh, the various and sundry things that players do to joke about leveling up the level up as a mechanic in universe. Uh, for the group did level up, I believe, uh, at the end of last episode, uh, hitting a new hitting a level level that gives them access to seventh level spells. Um, of which Morning Games Magnificent Mansion is one. I believe it's seventh level, isn't it, Jack? You had it. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seventh level. Yep. yep. And it's infinitely uh, manipulable and complex as long as it doesn't exceed, I think, 50,000 cubic feet. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. It's a lot. Also, most GMs ignore that restriction because I don't know if it's actually in the spell. <laughs> yeah, it is. Is it? You can create any floor plan you like, but the space can't exceed 50 cubes, each cube being 10 feet on a side. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, most GMs ignore that. <laughs> well, if I'd known you would ignore that, man, Gwyn's mansion would have been a lot cooler. But anyway. I mean, it already was plenty. It uh, was It was pretty cool, though. Plenty over the top. Anyways. Uh, so they are introduced to uh, Scanlan's Magnificent Mansion, which is this uh, 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 Trumpian uh, artifice of marble and gold. Uh, and narcissism. And narcissism with a with a picture uh, with a picture in the dining room of Scanlan in an evening in a in an evening gown, uh, standing next to a fireplace with a picture of Scanlan in an evening gown over top it. Um. Or, 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 what is it, uh, uh, what's the term for those robes, the ones that Hugh Hefner always wore? Lounge, uh, lounge robe, something. Gross old yeah. man robes? I yeah. mean, those, yeah, that that's the colloquialism, I'm trying to think of what the... <laughs> what they're actually what they're called. Actually called. <laughs> uh, but anyways... Uh, with 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 rooms enough for everyone and food and a hundred invisible servants, fifty of which are dedicated solely to Scanlan's pleasure, five of which are dedicated to playing music, playing ambient background music wherever they go, and the rest do whatever. Upon entering the upon entering the mansion, Grog kills two of them, uh, only for them to reform later. Then asks for a cow, which arrives only to only to realize it's a ghost cow, which he then sulks about the fact that it's not a real cow. Uh, the party disperses fairly quickly off to do their own various things. Uh, uh, Vexalia taking Grog and Trinket downstairs to the basement where there's apparently a training sand pit, uh, first off, and, uh, playing around with her stolen broom while, while Trinket practices rolling into Grog. He goes about as well as you could expect, uh, uh, Vexalia having not learned how the item works at all uh and, and she spends a little uh, an amount of time trying to get it to activate failing getting huffy stuffing it back in the bag and then going to find something else to do while grog wrestles with a bear for a while as as is grog's want as you do after failing to get the after failing to get the broom to fly uh which i'm actually gonna pause there for a second um there are two different approaches I've discovered that people have to talking about magical items, uh, both in D&D and, and role-playing games and in narrative fiction. Uh, the two, largely, largely the two uh, primary methods are either it's spelled out as thoroughly as you need it to, to be, or it's obscure. The Harry, the Harry Potter. Yeah, the Harry Potter method. Uh, or it's obscured to the point of becoming a puzzle. Uh-huh. How do you two feel about those two methodologies of dealing with magic items? I'll take what's behind door number one, Bob. You like to just have it spelled out? Uh, well, not spelled out, to be fair. I like it to be as... as... finding it... <laughs> Unless it serves a very specific story purpose, and I'll use something different from 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 this this campaign, 
uh, as a good example of that in the vestiges of divergence, unless it's something very specific and story related, to me, when it starts to get into like the minutiae of, to me, that's figuring out how the item works and, and blah, 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 and blah, blah. That bogs the story down, slows it down, brings everything to a grinding halt. And it's just not something that I'm particularly interested in. There is a lot of really valuable examples of where that can that can be done in a way that enhances narrative. And that, that should always be your goal in any uh-huh. story uh-huh. element anyway. But that kind of stuff I dig. What, again, when it's when it's you know, you have to go on twenty minutes or five pages. I think one of the greatest examples I ever saw. This isn't specifically magic, so this is a slight divergence, but the point is the same. The um, the uh, world of darkness did a series of uh, a clan novel for Vampire the Masquerade. This was all during their basically transition into Revised, and they were really starting to kick up the Gehenna stuff and so on. So there were a bunch of books, each of them focused on a, on a different iconic clan member uh, in one arcing narrative and seen it from that character's point of view. The Toreador book is one of the most infuriating things I've ever read because it had the Anne Rice problem. I don't need 12 pages describing a door to me. I understand that this is, you know, this is there to present a certain mindset of this character, but there is a point when that minutiae goes overboard. To me, that's what going through the big puzzle of magical items are, unless it's done specifically to enhance character. I would come in on a similar vein in that the, the idea of discovering something mysterious and potentially powerful and determining exactly how it functions and what sort of potential applications it can have um, can be a a very interesting narrative. I find that that sort of theme is usually a lot better done in sci-fi than it is necessarily in fantasy, but it it doesn't have to belong to to one genre or another. Um, But again it should be a fundamentally driving aspect of the narrative and be and continually be interesting and engaging to the viewer, the reader, whoever during the entire process. If the function of the object, however, or the tool in question is either already known or fairly apparent, then there's no generally frequently no need to dig into the and it works exactly like this. Here are all the the underlying mechanics and systems. It's like 
you don't have to put extra stuff into your your narrative if there's no reason for it to be there because that like jeremy said makes things drag slows things down um you know and becomes a chore for the reader to to run through Mm -hmm. the the sort of kind of both and the thing that crosses the line for me are things like the vestiges of divergent. Their initial purpose, you know, this is a sword, this is a cloak, this is a whatever, and it's semi-basic functionality is fairly apparent from the beginning, but given that they are magical artifacts that evolve and grow in power over time, makes them something of a hybrid but of course the way matt does that as we'll get into detail on in later episodes is that is always the thing's evolution and development is always a response to something that has happened at the behest of the wielding or the bearing character and so it's it's something that changes as the narrative drives the change, not the other way around. Which I find fairly engaging and very interesting. But yeah, I tend to go a little more on the, here's the thing, this is what it does. And if it changes, that's something that will occur naturally. We don't have to necessarily sit down and test this thing in a lab for the next three months. Yeah, and it's something that... I think role-playing game fiction books fall in a considerable trap in because when I'm reading something like uh, a Forgotten Realms novel or Dragonlance or, or, or what have you, there is always the need for of the writers, and I never I'm never sure because it feels to me like at least some part of it probably came in in the editorial process of they're trying to make it feel like you're reading a campaign. And so every time you get the spell, you know, every time like somebody, somebody casts a spell, they pull out their bat shit or their feather or, or so on. And it's fine the first time, but they do it every single time and it actively starts to take me out of the narrative. And I'm no longer reading the story. I'm reading somebody's campaign. I like, I, I, I sort of approach this sort of thing from a, um, I, both from a filmic and narrative and also from a jamming perspective, I like sort of a combination of these two things. I enjoy that first time you do a thing. Or that first time you discover a thing, or that first time you find a thing, going through that process and describing what it's like and showing what it's like in 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 film in film in film speech, showing what is happening and what's going on, like in in a Deadpool movie, showing him regrowing his limbs mm-hmm. that first time, or or sticking them back on or whatever. Uh, show that first time then shortcut the rest. Yep. Because what that does is it allows you to have that weight of reality 
to a thing, you get to experience that action or that intricacy. You get to get in your mind exactly how, you know, this person does pull out that bit of bat dung, roll it in their hands, then spit it off as a fireball. Um, and then every time after that, I cast fireball. And you know, right. because you've already gone through that experience, you've already broken it down prior, you mentally know exactly how that looks because you've had it explained before. And now when you shortcut it, you just instantly go back to that vision in your head. Um, that uh, Going to Harry Potter, because we use it as, as an example, uh, from a filmic perspective, in the first few movies, they sort of... A, you know, they sort of exorbitantly explained all of the spell casting in the in the in the Harry Potter universe and showed you every minuscule aspect of it. And then in the later movies, they stopped. They just sort of like ignored most of those rules and shortcut it because you already knew you didn't need to have all that explained again over and over and over again. Yep. Um. And and yeah, it, you know it argue plot hole whatever, but you, you get from a filmic perspective. That's the way that works. You show it, then you shortcut it. So basically the opposite of uh, 1980s Marvel comics regarding all the mutants and which powers they have. Welcome to the yeah. room again. Yeah, a <laughs> little bit. But the, I mean, there was there, there was good reason for that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, jumping on points and, and such. They're always they were always expecting that each book needed to be written at some degree for a new reader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why every single book, every single book from that era, and now they just do a do a summary page at the beginning, has starts off with a ridiculous amount of exposition, whether it's in thought bubbles or in dialogue bubbles. Oh, I thought that was mostly just because Chris Claremont can't help himself. Well, Chris Claremont is the purplest of purple prose writers. This is true. An angry, judgy purple prose. It's the best. <laughs> um, but no, another another really good example of this that's not fantasy related, but it's still genre that I always refer to is is the werewolf transformation. First time in any show, movie whatever the case may be, the first time you see the werewolf transform, it takes like fucking five minutes. Yep. Takes five, to ten, next time, five, five to ten minutes, you see every muscle bulge, you hear yep. every bone break, you you know exhaustively watch this whole thing. Interestingly, the next time you see it, it takes about two seconds. It, right. it, or it happens off screen. Like, yeah, and and it works. It makes sense. I mean, not it might not even happen off screen. It might happen on screen, and it's just a much quicker, less excruciating looking process. And that's fine because less special effects budget enhancing. Yeah, <laughs> because if you did that every time the werewolf changed form, you'd have a live action that would anime. Be, that would be half of your movie, yeah. and, and and also that's most of your budget. And that's sort of that that budget saving, you know, shortcutting yeah. is where that philosophy comes from. Yep. Of you know, show the first time, shortcut the rest because a, a it saves budget, it saves time. You don't have right. the act, you don't have to have the actor going through that transformation makeup all the time. Yep. Because uh, for those that aren't aware, extensive special effects makeuping is a long, arduous, and frustrating process for what amounts to five minutes of film. I mean, not even special effects work. Like, 
for perspective, um, uh, 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 Daenerys in Game of Thrones, the final season, would spend 45 minutes to an hour in the makeup chair to get a wig on and basic makeup. Well, and I'm thinking about things like, like, uh, like uh, Jim Carrey in, in The Grinch. Oh, yeah, no, like where the big it was stuff. 10 hours of makeup. Yeah, it was it, the big stuff is like, yeah, eight to 10 hours of makeup. It's ridiculous. And that's and, like they have to get there. They have to get the, get on set at like two o'clock in the fucking morning. And he has to sit there with his mouth open at various degrees to get all yep. the teeth in and to get the mouth melted. And and like it, it special effects makeup is serious business. And, and it's a lot of effort for very little payoff comparatively. And so. You get that guy and you get that guy in his werewolf costume. You do that. You do those shots as you get him into his werewolf costume. And then from then on, he's either in it or not. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get all the shots of him in it while you've got him in it. Then you strip him out of it and do the rest. And of course, digital digital effects work is, is changing a lot of that. Mm. Some case for the bad. That's a whole nother discussion. That's a, yeah, that's a separate but, discussion. But, yeah, that's a whole separate discussion. <laughs> Back on topic, though. Yes. Uh, so, after fiddling with the Berman and not being able to figure out how it works, Vex stomps off and goes and finds Keyleth, who is in the midst of eating food being given to her by these spectral servants. Um, asks Keyleth if she's good at identifying magical items, to which Keyleth basically says, nah, fam. Uh... <laughs> effectively saying i mean mentioning that she can tell things are magic but that's about it um to which uh to which vex then turns to scanlan and says scanlan i need your help and scanlan thus begins one of the best scenes in the entire first campaign <laughs> as scanlan says as Sam Regal, the actor, intentionally misinterprets on behalf of Scanlan, the character, the intentions of Vexalia. Who then, after realizing that Scanlan is misinterpreting these intentions, decides to lean into it. Uh, as, uh, as, uh, as, uh, Vex asks Scanlan, hey, I need your help with something, and Scanlan says, oh, well, should we, should, very, very casually, very glibly, uh, oh, should we retire someplace private, like my room? And without missing a beat, Vex goes, why, yes. Which immediately prompts Scanlan to completely lose any amount of cool he may have had previously, as he was not expecting that answer and wasn't prepared. <laughs> uh, letting Issuing forth the tiniest and most un-Scanlan-sounding squeak Sam Regal is capable of producing. Um... Having been caught very off guard, very much off guard, they then proceed to head upstairs where Scanlan, Scanlan heads up first while Vex goes and grabs the broom. Uh, prepare, he prepares his room for the what he foresees as being uh, an adventurous uh, evening um, as Vex comes up with her broom in tow, knocks on the door to reveal Scanlan uh, in a black silk robe laying on his circular bed with black satin sheets and a mirror over top of it. Uh with uh with uh five musicians playing music in the room 
turning to, turning and looking at, at Vex at the door, which opened on its own, going, Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot you were coming. Uh, Scanlan begins to lay on the charm hard, Vex playing into it as if, as if that was what she was coming for. Uh, only to pull the rug out from under Scanlan at the last minute and ask him about the broom. Uh... We then sort of the, the 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 facade falls away as they have a brief uh, discussion about uh, how Vex feels like the worst person in the world, and Scanlan agrees with the fact that she stole a broom from their their new friend Gern Blanston, uh, whose name whose last name I think I've messed up every time I've said it. Um, you got it right that time. Hmm? <laughs> um, but uh uh. And agrees to look at the broom to, to see what he can discover. Upon inspecting the broom, he discovers that there is indeed a command, uh, potentially a command word uh, etched into the broom, but he can't read it because it's in a language he doesn't know. Uh, after showing it to after showing it to Vex, who can read Draconic, uh, she reads the word out loud, and the broom begins to fly, and we get a Defying Gravity reference. Uh, as 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 Laura Bailey starts with the iconic "Something has changed within me." Uh, referencing the show, uh, Vex comes to grips with the with, comes to grips literally and figuratively with the broom, uh, and uh, learns how to manipulate it using the command word uh, over the course of a very short skit, where Scanlan has his musicians beginning to play "Fly to the Bumblebee," which apparently is music that exists in Taldore now. Uh, after a while, after a bit of that, uh, Vex uh, thanks Scanlan for his assistance. Uh, Scanlan says that uh, basically in order to thank him and also Gurn, uh, he will note that at some point in the future, he will pick somebody for Vex to help out in return for both his assistance and uh, to karmically pay back Gurn for the broom. Which Vex agrees to, and then floats off, uh, uh, as is stated, like one of those go- like one of those people with a Segway uh, on her new broom. The party as a whole relaxes after that, eventually falling asleep. At which point, dreams begin to occur. Vax uh, has a dream about the Raven Queen, indicating that he is a fate-touched being, and that his destiny is his to seize for good or ill, or potentially for not, if he dies in pursuit of that destiny. Um, Grog has a dream about... uh, Grog passed out in the sands of the training pit... Uh, has a dream about fighting uh, an endless sea of un- of invisible enemies with his eyes closed, uh, letting the sword uh, Craven Edge guide him uh, as he swings it about endlessly, lopping the heads off of enemies, only to eventually open his eyes and realize that he had been killing lots of people, including some people he didn't mean to kill, like his friend, like his good friend Pike. Uh... Realizing that he wasn't in control of his body, but instead seemed to be piloted by some other entity, he watched as uh, this vision expanded to include Kevdak, his uncle and leader, uh, his his uncle and leader of the uh, of the um, what's it called herd, the herd of storms, mm-hmm. 
um, bowing before him and indicating that he was proud of him. Oh, sorry, there was one thing I forgot. Before these dreams, because these, the, these dreams are at the end of my segment. Before the dreams, Sirconus uh, went to talk to Keyleth. That's right, I, forgot, I almost forgot about that. Um, Sirconus, uh, the leader of the, uh, the, the Pyro Village, goes to talk to Keyleth and explains sort of the, the, the occurrences prior to the rift opening in Thordak being let loose onto the world. Uh, several years ago, a young girl, uh, a young girl that was sort of abandoned by society, came to the uh, the fire Ashari, requesting shelter aid, and sanctuary, which they provided. And eventually, she uh, worked her way into becoming one of the uh, the the fire Ashari herself, a young human woman. Uh, as it got close to the events that let loose Thordak. Uh, Sokonos had noticed that she had been more withdrawn than the others lately and spent much of her time in the Cinder Grove. On the day that the rift opened, uh, there was lots of activity coming from the Cinder Grove, which when the, py when the, the, the Pyro went to investigate, they found this young girl wielding ancient magics far beyond her ken uh, to tear open a rift in the fire plane and bring forth Thordak, along with all the other chaos that had engulfed Pyra in recent events. After which, she vanished. Uh, when asked, I'm sure she's not going to show up at all. When asked what this girl's name was, Sirconus informed Keyleth that her name was Raishan. Which, after after getting done with talking with Sirconus, Keyleth realized is the name attributed to the Green Dragon from the Coma, from the Chroma Conclave, whom they had initially fought with during the attack on uh, um, Amon. Buck. Amon, yes. With that information, that's when they went to sleep. Then they had the dreams, which ended with Grog waking up after, after Kevdak and the Herd of Storms bowed in deference to him on his throne of corpses. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else that happened after that before it's Jeremy's turn, and I don't think there is. Doesn't seem like it. That's where Jeremy takes over. Yep. Personally, so, I think if you're going to have a throne, corpses is like, it's in the top five for things to build a throne out of. For sure. I feel yeah. Like, I, feel no, like, it, it, I feel like it goes, uh, it goes bones, uh, bones, swords, crystal corpses. No, give me corpses before the rest of those, because so corpses have that nice mix of like structurally sound with the bones and uh, a certain amount of squish with you know right the, you've got the, some the cushioning with body. tissues and yeah and, right yeah mm -hmm. yeah but the smell oh you can do things about that yeah I feel like I, I feel like with I feel like with bones you get all the intimidating fact whether well, you get all the intimidation factor but not the smell yeah but then if you don't want to like be ridiculously uncomfortable you have to like use pillows with the bones and it ruins the effect i feel like if you're going with the bone throne aesthetic you are in you are made comfortable by the fact that you are sitting on a throne of bones and it doesn't matter how actually physically comfortable you are at that point because you receive additional comfort by the nature of the act I would say this is one of those your mileage may vary things. The bold theory, Kyle. <laughs> um, what I'm saying, and I will say categorically, 
Do not make your throne out of swords. It's a really fucking bad idea. You're going to die. Everybody you know is going to die. Everybody you like, don't like, it doesn't matter. They are all going to die. And then a dragon's going to ruin the throne anyway. All, all, yeah. I, all I'm saying Definitely is go that... go with axes, given the option. All I'm saying is that all of my villains that have thrones made of bone recline in luxury on those thrones, and I feel are made creepier by the fact that they are extremely comfortable without pillows on the throne. That defies physics. I have concerns about your world, about how bone works in your world. See, see I'm, I'm going to go... I'm going to go with the Blizzard uh, entertainment thing and say top structural substance ice uh, the problem with ice is it's so cold like, i mean only if hard, you're like it's hard to be only if you are a lich and you don't need heat it, it's like which, which does help yes well well see, even if you are a lich it'll freeze over and you'll just be in a block of ice which is what yeah. happened and no. and because that was that was that was space ice <laughs> He was already in the ice before it became the throne. None of the no, liches... it was a throne, and then it was an ice, and then it was a throne again. We're gonna have to get William in on this. <laughs> in summation, corpse throne. Right. Just think about it. <laughs> corpse throne, also a heavy metal band. <laughs> Hashtag corpse throne. Um. All right, but yes, that is so. Morning comes. Like if you have a if you have, um, a, if, you have a, if you have a corpse throne, you have to have a catapult attached to it. So it is a corpse throwing corpse throne. Hey, that's not the worst thing in the. World. I was gonna say, I, I I honestly don't have any objections to this. No, no, not at all. <laughs> no that works because when one of the thrones, in, when one of the corpses in your corpse throne gets a little too ripe, you just replace it with a new corpse, and then you fling the 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 very ripe, about to burst like a like like a twelve week old watermelon. At your enemies. Yep. Yeah, I'm down. Yep. All right. Get we've, ready for we've, right. we've, cre- we've created the best throne. Get ready for the corpse th- the corpse throwing corpse throne to make its appearance in the next Grand Terra campaign. Yes. Cannot <laughs> <Do> wait. <laughs> uh, hashtag corpse throne. Okay, so uh yeah, next morning they end up hashtag in the breakfast corpse throne. Of- would you let me get my <laughs> sentence out, you fucker? Sorry, I had to make the emphasis. I have tried the this three different. times now. <laughs> I had to emphasize the spelling difference for corpse throne versus corpse throne. <laughs> anyway. So shit happens in the morning and then they go somewhere. Jack, it's your no, <laughs> No, so they end up in the breakfast nook of the mansion. Uh, Vex is in a very good mood. Uh, uh, Scanlan offers the group a, a host of food options, and they talk a little bit about the mansion itself and, and, and have a little philosophical debate about whether items that get left inside the mansion stay inside the mansion. They haven't had one of these before, and they're curious. Um, Scanlan manages to get Vex to acknowledge that she has the broom of flying. Uh, and she tries very, very hard to justify it. 
uh, things like I slipped. I I had it and then my hand slipped and it fell into the bag of holding. Making it very clear. And so he says, you stole, I think it's Percy says, you stole from a candle maker. And she says, I stole from a necromancer. He's <laughs> um, trying real hard to justify it here. Um, she manages to get the group to acknowledge that they also stole their last flying device in the carpet, which a lot of them hadn't really thought about. It's very evident at that moment. You know, you know what, what argument future Laura could go back and use to justify this? What? I stole from a serial abuser. I, I mean... <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> so, Vax expresses some concern that this was an action that was somewhat out of character for Vex. And... Vex doesn't really give a shit. I mean, she, she 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 engages in the conversation, but she's pretty determined to keep it. And this is a this is something that I really appreciate. I thought thought might be a nice uh, topic is when characters because we 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 read and we we create and we we game within. Uh, worlds where death is not final. Uh And one of the most interesting things about death to me is not that the characters go away, but those characters that do come back, or even those that don't, the other characters, how they react to that and how death can change a character. Um... And it's something that I've always, I have many, I have, I have a lot of experience with this because I have many characters that die because dice hate me. Right. Uh, And also I have characters that make terrible, terrible decisions. It's not all the dice. Some of it is the characters. Um... But the I have a lot really of really help though. The dice, the dice facilitate my terrible decision. Right. Um, but I have a lot of thoughts on this. I was wondering if you guys did. So, uh, for, I, I want to first start off by uh, by addressing the uh, that seems out of character uh, comment made by Vax to Vax or made by Vax to Vax. Um, while in character, that that. I, I want to stress that that was an in-character statement, not an out-of-character statement, because yes. it's perfectly in-character for Vexalia to have stolen this shit. Uh, but not from the perspective of her older brother, of her well, twin brother, who only sees the good in her and never the bad. Uh, Absolutely. So it's completely in-character, both for him to be concerned about it and also for her to have done the thing. That being well, said. I also think I also think to be perfectly fair, this is talking about Vex has always been very greedy and has always been willing to arguably rob people when when doing negotiations, but it's rare that she would actively steal something from someone. She tried to actively steal a book from a librarian. Rare. I we said, <laughs> and there is a difference between stealing a book and stealing someone's treasured, very useful, very 
important magical item. Only if you only if you only if you see the difference being, you know, the value the other person assigns to it as opposed to the value you assign to it, which in 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 Vexalia's cases, they're both things I want and I don't know that she ever considers how the value that anybody else assigns to things. You're not wrong. <laughs> and like it is so it's one of those interesting things because it is it's both it is out of character for for her in terms of things that she would actively do. But it's very much in character for her mindset. Yeah. Which uh, is a great dichotomy I enjoy. Um and also there's a there's a conversation to be had about in character and out of character because mm-hmm. people are complex individuals. And we are by and large even if especially in fiction if you're writing them well they do not they are not simply one alignment's worth of personality traits right no. uh and those personality traits can be expressed and affected in a wide variety of ways including ways that are contradictory people can hold contradictory ideas in their heads that's uh-huh. a thing people do all the time christians especially do that all the time <laughs> A lot of religions, to be perfectly fair, yeah, but yeah, you know, no, I, yeah, yes, a lot of religions do that, but I, that those are the ones that are more relevant to me being in the South at the moment. You're not wrong. Love your fellow man, unless they're brown. Anyways, uh, but uh, um, the uh, people can have contradictory thoughts and actions and emotions in their head. That does not. M- Acting on those at differing times does not make one acting out of character. Uh, Because characters are nuances, and characters are more than just what they present on the surface. So, first and foremost, like, is, is, is death changing a character, or is it just making them realize that they don't have to hide certain aspects of them, of themselves anymore? Um, and and is that a change? Like, does does that qualify as a fundamental change for you? Is part of the question there. Um, for me, I I I enjoy a little bit of I enjoy both aspects of 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 the idea where death doesn't actually change you all that much in these worlds because it's such a commonplace thing, um, and and or because depending on your GM, you didn't know you were dead. That's the fun one for me is uh, when a char- when a, when a character doesn't know they were dead, but everyone else does. And they come back like, oh, I was just, I was unconscious, right? Um, uh, yeah, you were unconscious for three days and necrosis had lightly set in. <laughs> was, but to them, it was, you know, the blink of an eye. Uh, or, de- depending, because sometime, sometimes, depending on your GM or depending on your world, you'll instantly, you know, find yourself awake again in the afterlife. Um, right. Potentially waiting to be resurrected or whatever, depending on if there's a waiting, if there's a queue in limbo or not. Um... There should always be a queue in limbo. I mean, it's limbo. I feel like the entire thing is a queue. <laughs> Just one large letter Q. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> um, but so, so what you're saying is limbo is is Picard telling you to fuck off with your nonsense? Yes. 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 <laughs> we got there. Full circle. All right. Um, well done, everybody. <laughs> Team effort. But, you know, and, and I, I feel like there is interesting ways to approach uh, that in either direction. Either you didn't know you were dead, so pretty much you're the same person, or 
you viscerally experienced the death and mm-hmm. have and know that you were dead and that you've come back. Um, we had a lot of fun with that in Grand Terra with Hope, who yep. knew she died and then came back and tried to hide it from everyone. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't, I, I like both. I like, I like both the idea of the character changing after death and of the idea of the character not, because I think both are, both are valuable. Um, and both have interesting thing, interesting things they can tell. And realistically in the giant air quotes that we use when talking about D and D, I feel like that is something that changes from person to person. Um, yeah, not everybody's going to respond to trauma in the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. React, react with the same level of severity or, or intensity. Like, um, uh, just as, as a real world example, people react very differently to near misses on the highway. Uh-huh. Like if you almost get hit by another car, some people freak out and pull off to the side of the road and have to take a minute. Other people just flick off the other driver and keep going. And we call those people sociopaths. That's me. <laughs> I was going to say I stand I by we, my statement. I I thought we called those people East Coasters. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as someone no. born and raised in Maryland and who has done that with remarkable frequency over the years. Yeah, you oh, you correct. You don't crash. Right. Everyone's <laughs> fine. Fuck you. I, swear, I continue you're on. An asshole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I drive. <laughs> One middle finger up and the other hand on the wheel. Right. Fair. Um yeah, and like like, like every everybody's gonna react differently, and I find that both reactions or any reaction are valuable. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think that there you you guys are correct in that there there is a little bit of a trap, especially in the role playing scenario of characters <clears throat> not being super nuanced and being portrayed as oh well there are things that my character will always do and there are things that my character would never do regardless mm-hmm. of extenuating circumstances and social situations and exterior pressures and that sort of thing where you know <laughs> the the ability of of a single individual <clears throat> to go from one extreme of action to another based on what's happened in the last 5 minutes is something very very common to real humans in the real world and limiting your characters that way i have always felt is kind of a disservice to to both the narrative and and to what you're trying to do because we're you're generally there is a a consensus that you're playing a character you're not playing an archetype you know if you're if you're if your game is, yes, we're all true fae from Arcadia, then sure, there are limits to what you will and will not do, um, you know, and you're also fucking sociopathic assholes as well. Um, but I mean, I feel like that description describes 
just about every role-playing, every D&D party that has ever existed. To be okay, there, there are but aspects I know what you of mean. that, but nothing nearly. About, okay, I'm going I'm going off on a change. Not, the, not on the but level. Yeah, yeah right, but not on the level of a fucking true from Arcadia. Uh, I, and I, I will, I will say that there's also a bit of a uh, anachronistic, uh, a, a bit of a, an anachronistic perspective on this because we like to look at D and D characters with our modern sense, with our with our current real world sensibilities. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the sensibilities of the world that they come from are likely to be very differently. Like in D and D, in the Forgotten Realms, the value of a life is very different to the value of a life in the real world for a variety of reasons not the least of which is some people just live forever even if they're not a long-lived race they just live forever other people die you know other people die get re- get resurrected die again get resurrected die again get resurrected and yet other people just get the entirety of a continent wiped out in dragon fire so the, yeah. the value of a life in, in that world as opposed to the value of a life in our world is very different. So there's also a lot of, a lot of like out of character or weird approaches to things because we tend to approach things with the values that we have in our, in our world mm-hmm. that aren't, wouldn't necessarily be reflective of those values in that world. Well, I mean, so like, I, I have a different take on the Forgotten Realms and... Uh, fantasy settings in general as far as that in that <clears throat> other than the fa- other than the long-lived races that we're talking about i don't consider for the most part or you know particularly mystical places like ever even there it's a little bit rare but i don't consider the idea of x person died let's find a cleric to resurrect them to be a viable option pcs are the pcs are almost and the high level npcs they encounter are almost always the exception to that to the rule (laughs) that way and for me as far as far as death and how how characters react to death goes my characters, I know, usually are fairly significantly affected, not in an overt way, all the time. But 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 they're usually fairly significantly affected for a couple of reasons. One, I just I I I I'm interested in character progression, um, in the idea of it, and. A lot of character progression, I uh, I feel like, tends to be shortcutted as a rule in a good way. Like like you, if you're doing, if you're doing how how a, how how a person's going to change, usually it's not going to happen at the rate that it tends to happen within the space of a novel, film. Uh, or, or or a role playing game. People don't generally in in quote unquote in in real life change that way uh, or that rapidly as a rule. Um. So 
really significant things like this that you major traumas, major <clears throat> major major moments in your life tend to be those moments that really change you. Um, obviously, even if death is something that can that can that can be reversed, that tends to be a big moment, unless, like John said, you're not aware of it. Um. So, so for me, those are usually a chance to explore. Okay, how does this change? Because I've just gone through, say, three sessions where we've been traveling on the road and having a few fights and things like that. But there hasn't necessarily been any really big moment where I can see, okay, how, where I can progress character arc. Things like this give me that, that opportunity. And the other part of it is I like to see character change because that does reinforce the idea that death actually means something. <clears throat> Like that's that's one of my pet peeves of 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 fantasy role playing is when somebody dies and the reaction from the party is oh well let's tally up our money do we have the five hundred gold we need <laughs> or whatever the case may be okay we do oh good we actually have the diamonds on us now okay okay it's handled let's go yeah. like that that. That drives me insane because uh, for a lot of reasons, the stakes issue, if it's something like that, then there's no stakes in anything. Mm. Um, but but also, like, even if I had the ability to just pay $500 to the guy in the in 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 the Protestant church down the street. <laughs> to bring back, you know, bring back somebody who got hit by a car or something like that. That's going to affect me. Yeah. And that's going to affect them. Um, the value of a life is $500. I mean, <laughs> in D&D, a lot of the time it is. <laughs> as long as you can get to them within a minute. Um Otherwise, you might have to spend a thousand. Right. Uh, but but so for me, I, I always feel like, and I am perfectly fine, obviously, because I've had a lot of fun with these characters who, who react in other ways, in less, less, less dramatic or less life-changing ways. But for me, I've always felt it was important for my characters to have a significant reaction to it because it reinforces that in that world death actually means something which is one of my favorite aspects of our warlocks game currently yep. is that you know that yeah it's 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 a limited rule set in a sense from a from a fifth fifth edition perspective but yeah there's nobody around who can do resurrections mm -hmm. we can't even just right yeah you guys, you guys are among the most powerful magic users of your reality, right? And but but resurrection is off the table, yep. you know. And and I feel like it's it's been an interesting examination to see how these characters react to death. I would say significantly differently than most other 
fantasy setting yeah. campaigns yep. that I've played. I feel like it goes run. back to that idea of, you know, the value of a life in Conflux is roughly equivalent to the value of a life on, in, in real life. Mm-hmm. Because there's no ability to bring them back. It's you get, right. the, one, you get the one and that's it. Unless and then by the types. same token, like World of Darkness games, the value of the life of a life is extremely variable depending on what game you're playing, mm-hmm. who your character is, etc., etc., etc. And like even 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 like throwing away the idea of resurrection, the value of a life can be very variable in other worlds, like depending mm-hmm. on what's the value of a life in uh in uh, uh dark ages england or or in bubonic plague england yep like mm-hmm. versus the value of a life today yeah right very different because in, in in bubonic plague england if you have a funny cough go <laughs> yep because that life is far less valuable at that point than it would be today Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- I, that, that I think is the more interesting question rather than does death affect your character what is the value of life to your character what is the value of a life to your character uh-huh. is it- I mean they're related questions I, was gonna say, though, because yeah. I would say they're two sides of the same coin uh, but yeah the only mm-hmm. way that the only way how death affects your character unless you're just expositioning it the way that you show that is how you know the way that you show how your character views the value of the life is how they react to death yeah and how it changes well also how they you know how they react to killing bandits and things like that <laughs> oh yeah well yeah anyway Fre- frequency frequently the the value of a life depending on how much the bounty is for it is anywhere from you know 5 to 20 gold <laughs> Yep. <laughs> or, you know, how many, whatever, whatever coin is in their pocket. <laughs> it's the amount of coin on their body. Three coppers. The uh-huh. <laughs> this guy but did, yeah. This guy didn't live a very valuable life. He only has like five copper. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so, <laughs> uh, ultimately, um uh and the conversation continues a little bit uh um vex tries to distract off of it which is a really interesting character choice to me like this this whole thing very much reads like vex and she acknowledges in a point in here that she's not scared of death anymore and that she, that you know she's already died once, so it's not something. And that's sort of what's what what what's what's inspired her her sort of new lease on life to a degree and alignment. Um, <laughs> that part's not addressed explicitly, but um, but she's notably constantly trying to distract the group away from that. And I think we see sort of later on in, in, and we'll get there eventually, that perhaps she's not being entirely honest with herself. This, Anyways, uh, uh, Keyleth, you know, Keyleth uh, pushes the issue a little bit <clears throat> in that she doesn't want, she doesn't want 
Vex's greed to result in her death. Um, and she's she's particularly says she's worried when when Vex says she's not scared of death anymore. Um, she, Keyleth ultimately ends up sort of sort of shifting off that subject to talk about Circona stopping by and and she tells the group about Raishan infiltrating the Ashari. Uh, the group kind of uh, talks a little bit about what to do next. Um, uh, Grog is clearly not too keen on the idea of going after Kevdak and the Titans go knuckles right away. Um, he, he brings it up and he plays it off in a very much, uh, well, if that's what, you know, if that's what we want to do, that's a week. We can absolutely do that. I just, you know, think maybe we should get some extra credit items is something that he mentioned, uh, before they go and do that. Uh, they do have a couple other options, um, going af going to go find, uh, Assis's mate and, and, and talking to him. Um, heading to Western, and since it's all generally in the direction of Western, they they talk a lot about heading in that direction, and cue a long meandering discussion <laughs> where the gist of what comes out of basically they debate all of the different the different things that they can do wandering back and forth from one to the other and 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 so on um as vox machina tends to do um but the only thing that really significant that comes out of this is is the character development for Grog, who or or the character moment i guess would be a, be a better way to put it for grog who does a very good job of uh, Travis does a very good job of 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 sort of portraying how Grog is clearly has some anxiety about have about potentially having to face Kevdak and and the herd of storms. Um but Grog being Grog doesn't want to admit that. Um he 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 sort of Tells his story about when he first encountered, uh, or when he first got kicked out of the herd. Um, so we get a little nice little refresher on that. Um, ultimately, they decide that they are going to they're going to go toward Western, and since everything that they're going for is basically in that general direction. And they use Keyleth's uh, 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 plant teleport spell to go to the Bramblewood, which is the nearest thing that they have. They actually, there's a couple of moments in there where they're like, well, let's go here. Crap, I don't know of any trees here. Well, let's go here. Crap, I don't know of any trees here. So it <laughs> all after all of that, like figuring out what they want to do, it, it kind of boils down to where can they go without having to walk? Um, they end up wind-walking their way out of the Bramblewood. Uh, they encounter the place where Umbrasil, uh, the black dragon, collects his offerings. Uh, continue on and get, get in sight of, of the farmland surrounding Western. 
I've seen that some of it's burned. Uh, Vex and Vax see that some of the farm workers are being watched by the guards, by guards who are keeping them at work. Um, they all step out of their wind walk, start sneaking along. They end up finding a farmer who they have a brief conversation with. Uh, his name is Reginald. Um, he tells them that the farmers have to provide for those in the city or the people who are in control of the city will just go out and steal from whoever is nearby anyway. Um, he says his daughter is being held captive within the city. Um, Vax asks some details. They find out that the uh, guards are half-orcs and eventually come to the realization that the guards are, are from the herd. Um, the group tries to decide to sneak up on, on one of the guards. Grog recognizes him. Uh, this punk kid from the herd who definitely grew up, uh, whose name was Horace, I believe. Yes. Yep. Horace. Uh, the party gets all predator-style camouflaged. <laughs> By that, I mean Schwarzenegger predator, not predator predator. Right. Uh, which, which I thought was amusing, given that that is an ability that Vex apparently employed on the whole group. Yep. Despite the fact that the player's handbook says you can only do this to yourself. But yeah. You know. But Rule yeah. of cool, though. Absolutely. Uh, Keyleth preps an entanglement spell. Uh, Vex has Reginald fake an injury and call for help to lure Horace over. Keela sets off the spell and we go to Jack. So Horace blunders into the crops. He's a Goliath, like Grog is, so, you know, fairly, fairly large, rather physically imposing. But when you don't know that the plants are there to more or less cocoon you, um, one can easily see how Horus fails his save and is immediately ensconced by Keyleth's druid magics, at which point Travis makes a character choice that I think definitely informs the rest of the session and really begins to inform uh, Grog's conduct from this point forward. As we've seen the campaign so far, at least in my sort of analysis, Grog is usually quite content to simply take what opportunities sort of throw themselves at his feet, but for the most part, stands back and doesn't engage too much unless someone, one of his friends specifically points him in a direction. At this point, though, confronted with aspects, people from his past that he suddenly recognizes being here, and you can see those grog, those, those gears in Grog's six intelligence brains starting to click <clears> into <throat> place. And he just jumps full body onto this former tribesman of his and begins to engage him in a in a especially for grog very sophisticated manner first he beats the shit out of him then he lets him talk 
and starts a little bit of a rapport. They go back and forth, Horace more or less assuming that Grog is here to rejoin the herd, a, a delusion that Grog does not disabuse him of, um, kind of gives him a breakdown of, well, yeah, I mean, you know, we were doing our normal rampage across the countryside thing, saw these huge fucking dragons, decided no thanks, eventually stumbled into Westron, which had more or less been cracked open like an egg, and decided, yeah, we'll take advantage of the fact that this place is nowhere near as fortified and secure as it normally is, and we'll pick up the leftovers, which they apparently didn't enjoy for quite a while. Their own numbers having been increased somewhat by other tribes that they had defeated and sort of press ganged into joining the herd of storms. Um, and they ran roughshod over Westrun for a little while until Ursula the Black Dragon comes back. At which point, according to Horace, uh, the 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 herd has to bend the knee, um, has to sort of take a, a vassalage position to the dragon because, you know, it's a huge fucking ancient black dragon. What are you going to do? Um, and they take from the town and the surrounding area. They collect what they can. They secrete a little off to the side for themselves and that sort of thing. And the rest of it, they leave for Umbrasil, who comes and I assume gets it in a wheelbarrow once every week or so. Um, and at this point, having gotten as much information as I think he feels he is going to, um, Grog more or less just cold-blooded murders this Goliath while he's helpless on the ground and Grog's got him got him him pinned to the dirt with Craven Edge. Which, given our experiences with Craven Edge, is a very Craven Edge sort of thing to do. But it's 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 at this point that you start to see Grog taking on some of the perspectives that that very cold, calculated, practical, pragmatic aspect of Craven Edge's personality and really allowing Grog's own aspects of that in and of himself to bring those to the forefront as well. Which is kind of a surprise to most of his friends. Uh, but they, of course, no one up to this point is really aware of the fact that Craven Edge is a sentient weapon. It communicates with Grog, that sort of thing. So as far as they're aware, it it isn't this this is this is just Grog kind of going a little bit off the deep end. Those reactions are sort of tabled for the moment, though, because Grog immediately advises going into town for some level of recon, having some of them go in. It ends up being everybody but Grog and Scanlan resuming their Windwalk Mist forms and stealthing into town to sort of see what they can find. What they find is fairly consistent with the the sort of picture that that Horace had painted for Grog. Um, you know, the the town is is been more or less completely <clears throat> destroyed. There's a number of buildings that are still intact, but it's obvious that the dragons did a hell of a number on Westron. Um, 
obviously the the herd is in charge is in control has set themselves up as the owners of this of this uh, city at this point uh with their stronghold being uh one of the large houses that's still mostly uh entirely intact um and with that sort of intel gathered they uh speak a little bit to some of the local townsfolk to confirm what's been going on and what sort of needs the area is going to have if they're going to help and then begin to to head back while they're gone scanlan and grog begin to have a discussion about craven edge specifically grog tries to uh see if craven edge if if uh if scanlan can hear the sword scanlan of course at first cannot uh, and then there's there's a bit of well, what if you, what if Grog gave Scanlan the sword? And then there's some some compulsions and personality wars between Craven Edge and Grog and Scanlan all at once. <laughs> Scanlan eventually does grab uh, the does gain access to uh, being able to hear Craven Edge's voice. Um, and of course, Craven Edge has been fairly tolerant of Grog as a wielder because Grog has the the <laughs> qualifications that Craven Edge is looking for in a wielder, you know, uh, high capacity for murder and doesn't usually engage heavily on the critical thinking, question-asking side of things. Scanlan, of course, is a very different individual, both in personality, temperament, and intellect. Um, so Scanlan and Craven Edge's interactions are a little bit, uh, more complex, but it does give Scanlan at least some insight <clears throat> into what this thing is that, that Grog is carrying around on his back this entire time. Um, no super intensive or... Uh, explicit actions are taken by either one of them as regards Craven Edge right now. Um, and then the other rest of the group returns and the discussion devolves into, okay, well, what are we going to do about Kevdak and the herd? Um, they go back and forth with a couple of various options about, you know, either sne sneaking in and trying to assassinate Kevdak, uh, having Grog challenge him to some level of ceremonial combat uh to try and gain the, the access to the titan stone knuckles which is this diversion uh vestige of divergence that they're trying to to acquire as best they can uh and ultimately they arrive at the point that given that pike is no longer with them currently and that it's going to be more or less uh, a six versus 60 rough uh, numbers breakdown if they just go in uh no holds barred they ultimately decide to head further into the frost wheel uh to search for uh osisa's mate the other sphinx um that was referenced to them last time they were in uh vasselheim uh under the slayer's tape but the 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 character beats here grog is taking a much more active much more proactive role in this and it's it's interesting to see the character develop into less of the comic relief bumblefuck 
but really good at killing people thing into some into a character who is being allowed to explore while while he's still not a a bucket of brains he has knowledge he has instincts at this point and i feel like grog is a very instinctual strategy and that's kind of interestingly exposed through this whole sequence as well he's not he's not looking at it tactically but he's going with his gut and making the best decisions that he can in a very sort of in it, it's an interestingly insightful without being intellectual sort of sort of way but the session rolls to an end with them once again striking back out into the wilderness towards a secondary or at least an, an alternate objective with this sort with this kind of specter of western under under an an oppressive invading force kind of lurking in their background to be addressed at a later date and that's where the episode concludes yep but the, the and and for me my big takeaway was was mostly the very skillful way I feel that Travis as a performer um, takes what strengths he can from this character that he's built and applies them to a situation at hand in a way that we haven't seen yet. And I've always loved when you you reach a point in in a narrative where the audience, the viewers generally know what each character is about they've gotten to the point where they can they can somewhat predict how a character each individual character would react to a certain situation and once again like you guys were saying about about the nuance of characters and the fact that nobody is just one thing when a performer can take that character and say all right but in this situation they also have the capacity to react in this very different, while still consistent, very different manner. And I think that they did that very masterfully uh, on Travis's end. This episode specific. And I agreed. really liked it. Yep. Also agreed. So that was episode 47, The Family Business. Uh, next time we'll be talking about episode 48, Into the Frost Wheeled. I've been, in the meantime, I've been John, and we've been Jack and Jeremy and Final Show Films as a whole. And, you know, you think <laughs> yes, after 48, have. after 48 episodes, I'd have a way to end this thing, but I, it's nah, still, there's, uh, no, there's no consistency there. But different every the time. Fuck? My favorite, my favorite ongoing joke in all of our stuff combined is that we can never get intros or outros right. Well, no, I always get intros right. It's the it's the not having an established outro We, we need a way to land problem. this fucking plane is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's my favorite thing about Fortune Hunters right now, is that we have yet to get the intro right. <laughs> We're on episode... I think last week's was 12? That sounds like a you problem. <laughs> no, no. That sounds like an us awesomeness. <laughs>
Perfect. Anyway. Anyways, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.